Now that's a song I want to get up and preach after right there. Come on, man, that is good stuff right there. Praise the Lord. Well, my name is Kenneth Bruce, and I'm the senior pastor here at Westwood. If you're a visitor, thank you so much for coming to worship with us. Our mission at Westwood is to invest in people who will impact their world for Jesus. This is where we get from, we grab this from the Great Commission in which Jesus calls upon us to go and make disciples of all nations. This is the call that God has placed upon us as a church to invest in people. And so we want to welcome you. Thank you for coming together with us. Inside your worship guide is a connect card. If you don't mind just filling that out and hold on to it if you're a guest because we have a special gift that we would like to give to you. On the way out, you can stop by the information center, drop it off, and we'll give you that free gift just a way to say thank you for coming to worship with us. I also want to encourage you that sermon notes are not only in your worship guide, you can also get them on the Westwood app. You can pull out your phone or your iPad right now and go to gowestwood.org slash app. You can download our church app where there is a, a rich amount of content, of sermons, of information about small groups, ways you can connect to serve. Just a great way for you to get more information about Westwood and also help you grow in your relationship with the Lord. Now, when I say the name William Wallace, there are many whose first thoughts are of a Scottish warrior, probably thinking of a really great movie that took place in the early 2000s. But there is another William Wallace that I want to draw your attention to this morning that comes from East Tennessee. He's the son of a doctor, and at the age of 17, while he was working on a car in his garage, he was wrestling with his purpose in life, and he was asking himself, what is, what is it I'm going to do with my life? And then his question changed, what does God want to do with my life? He then pulled out a New Testament, and he began to pray. And it was right there in the garage that he committed himself to become a medical missionary, well, he went into med school at the University of Tennessee. He graduated, was offered lucrative positions all across the country to be a physician, but he turned them all down because God had called him to be a medical missionary. Well, 10 years to the month in which God met with him in that garage was when he left for South China to preach the gospel. And for 15 years, he gave his life to the Chinese people. Not only practicing medicine and performing surgeries, he was serving and he was caring for the people in the midst of tremendous political uprisings, the Japanese invasion, World War II, and the communist takeover. Several times he would perform surgeries with bombs exploding all around him at the hospital. He once wrote a letter to his sister, and it said this, Dear sister, our hospital, our school, and houses were bombed yesterday at 11 a.m. One bomb hit right in the middle of the hospital and three on the side. We are all safe. None of the hospital employees killed, a few hurt. Hospital is full of wounded. Don't worry, we are all safe. Don't have time to write more. Write more. Don't worry, William. Don't worry. <laughs> Like, don't worry about it, sister. God's got us right where he has us. A famine struck the land where he was serving, and so they were running out of food, but he gave his food away for the good of those who were hurting, and he would go to the trash cans, and he would eat burnt rice for his nourishment. 
Eventually, William was arrested, imprisoned. He was put in a dark prison cell where he stayed there, where he received beatings. He was tortured. He was falsely accused of being a spy. Well, after several months of just brutal beatings, he died at the age of 43. His body was put in a cheap wooden coffin. It was nailed shut, put in the ground. And the church there in China collected some money to be able to pay for a tombstone over his grave. And it said seven words. For to me, to live is Christ. You see, suffering and hardship, this is common for those who belong to Jesus. As us who follow Christ here in the West, we are a privileged bunch where the vast majority of our brothers and sisters around the world face severe persecution and suffering for the sake of the gospel. But Jesus told us it would be this way. In John 15, 20, Jesus said, A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you. So with the call to hardship being the the call that God places upon us as believers, how in the world are we to respond when hardship comes? Well, Simon Peter is seeking to answer that question in 1 Peter chapter 3. Let me show you. Grab your Bibles and turn with me to 1 Peter chapter 3. We're going through a sermon series as a church that's entitled Imperishable Righteousness, that indeed in Christ we possess what we cannot lose because of what Jesus has done for us in the gospel. And we have in Christ a righteousness. It is the righteousness of Christ that has been given to us, and we're going to unpack that more here in a few weeks. But out of the righteousness that we have in Jesus, we go and live out righteous lives. Now, we are on our 20th message through the book of 1 Peter. And you would think, good grief, in five chapters, we should be done by now. And I was thinking the same thing, okay? But there is just so much to unpack. But if you've, if you've missed any messages or if you want to go back and get some more content, you can download the Westwood app and you can get more information and be able to download the sermons to get caught back up. But to kind of give a a brief summary of where we are, the author of this book is Simon Peter, the disciple of Jesus. The same Simon Peter who walked on water with Jesus. The same Simon Peter whom Jesus called to come and be a fisher of men. This is the same Simon Peter who in Acts chapter 2 stands up at Pentecost, preaches the gospel, and 3,000 people believe upon Jesus in one day. This is the same Simon Peter who performed miracles that validated the gospel message and who, according to church tradition, was sentenced to death on a cross, but he refused to be crucified in the same way that Jesus was, and so he requested to be crucified upside down. When his first letter, he's writing to believers who are suffering for the sake of the gospel. They are facing persecution for following Jesus. And so he's writing to these first century believers in Asia Minor, which is most of modern day Turkey, and he's challenging them to stand firm in the true grace of God. Don't back down. Remain faithful to the Lord. He has spent so much of his letter telling these people, this is who you are in Christ. This is how you go and live out the gospel. And so now he's giving insight of how to respond when hardship comes. Notice these three truths from the text from 1 Peter chapter 3. 
When hardship comes, number one, do not fear harm, suffering, or people. Do not fear harm, suffering, or people. Look at verse 13. Peter writes, Who then will harm you if you are devoted to what is good? In verse 13, Peter is presupposing the reader already knows the answer to this rhetorical question. It's nobody. Though your enemy may physically injure you, though your enemy may physically kill you, spiritually, they cannot touch you. You are eternally secure and safe in Jesus. Paul says in Romans 8.31, What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? Who then will harm you is Peter's question. On the last day when you stand before the Lord, your, anim- your enemies can't do anything to you on that day. And whatever you endure in this life, God will vindicate you on the last day. So that when you take your last breath or when Jesus returns, there is no one who can harm you. But also, we don't fear suffering. Not only that, but verse 14 But even if you should suffer for righteousness, you are blessed. So we don't fear harm, but we also don't fear suffering. Verse 13, no one can harm you in the long term. But verse 14, even if you suffer in the short term for righteousness, you are blessed. Peter here is quoting a beatitude from Jesus' Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 5. Jesus preached these words, Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. You don't have to fear when you face suffering. You don't have to fear when you face persecution as a believer, but rather, Jesus says, you are to rejoice. You are to be glad because you have a great reward in heaven. Now, this is contrary to how you and I feel in the midst of the pain. But the Bible says that when we are persecuted for righteousness and for the sake of Jesus, we are blessed. You see, William Wallace was a blessed man even in his persecution. You see, God always rewards the faithfulness of his people. Oftentimes, you may have people who are going to laugh at you because you don't go drinking with them. They may be wondering, why in the world are you not saying the same inappropriate jokes at the water cooler? Why are you remaining so faithful to this Savior. They may mock you for your faith in Jesus, but we are not to be embarrassed or ashamed for great is your reward in heaven. If you should suffer for the sake of righteousness, you are living the imperishable righteousness that you possess in Christ, Peter says you're blessed. Now Peter here is outlining for us what blessing looks like when you are persecuted. Now, May I say to you that one of the many reasons why many believers don't share their faith in Jesus is because they're afraid of what other people might say or do to them. Man, what if they make fun of me? What if they mock me? What if they punch me in the face? Peter says, you're blessed. 
God is going to bless you and your reward for faithfulness, even in the midst of suffering, is a reward from Jesus himself. He commands you to rejoice and be glad in your suffering. You see, God tethers his blessing to the suffering of his people that endure for his sake. So do you want to be blessed? Peter says, don't fear suffering. So you do not fear harm, you don't fear suffering, and you do not fear people. Look at verse 14. Peter says, do not fear what they fear or be intimidated. You see, in Isaiah 7 and 8, Israel is threatening to attack Judah. And King Ahaz, who is the king of Judah in the south, is getting really scared. He is nervous because Israel in the north is about to come after him. And he is terrified that he is no longer going to be king and his people are going to be attacked. And so God sends Isaiah the prophet in Isaiah chapter 8 and tells him, Don't be afraid of them. Do not fear what they fear. Rather, fear the Lord and trust in him. You see, Ahaz is tempted to be afraid of the attacks of his enemies, but God sends Isaiah to say, don't be afraid of them. Don't be intimidated. Well, now, first century believers, they're tempted to be afraid of their enemies to attack them. So God sends Peter, and he says to them, do not be afraid of them. Do not be intimidated by them. Rather, be as bold as a lion. Be strong in the Lord. Stand firm. Don't flinch. Don't back down. Don't cower in fear. There is no retreats. Do not fear man. Solomon says in Proverbs 29, 25, fear of man is a snare. It's a trap. But the one who trusts in the Lord is protected forever. You see, fear of man is forbidden by your sovereign God. Jesus says in Matthew 10, 28, do not fear those who kill the body but not, are not able to kill the soul. Rather, fear him who's able to destroy both soul and body in hell. This week, I was riding in the car with my children and we were listening to the world news on the radio. I know it sounds exciting. And as my kids were listening, one of my children said, Dad, I don't want to be around when the U.S. falls apart. And I said, buddy, I sure do. I said, because we're going to have some great gospel opportunities. And sensing some fear in his heart, I said, buddy, the Bible says that we're not to be afraid. And so even if our country falls apart, are we to be afraid and he said, no. And I said, what if, even for the sake of following Jesus, they kill us? What happens to us? And he goes, heaven? I'm like, it's right. For to me, to live is Christ. To die is gain. That only makes sense when you're living for Jesus and you're unafraid and unashamed of what can happen to you. Paul says in Acts chapter 20, I do not consider my life worth any value to me. 
If only I might finish the race than which God has called me to by testifying to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Y'all, do not hold fast to this life. It's a vapor. Here today, gone tomorrow. And here Simon Peter is telling these persecuted believers, do not hold on to your life. Do not count your life as precious to you. Hold it very, very loosely. Hold loosely to this life, but hold fast to the Lord Jesus Christ. We are not home yet. You're exiles. You're sojourners. You're aliens in a foreign land. Okay, Kenneth, so I'm a dad. I'm a mom. I'm a, I'm a grandparent. What do I do to prepare my children and grandchildren for what's coming in the future? I told my children this week, I said, listen, what you're going to experience in your life is going to be far more difficult than what I've experienced. It's going to get harder, not easier. So we can either retreat and go and hide, or we can engage the culture. And so what I want to do is I want to prepare my children for the battle that is coming for them. Well, how do we do that? I'm going to show you three quick ways. The first is this, model fearlessness, model it. Model fearlessness. Repeatedly throughout the scriptures, God commands his people, do not fear. Do not fear. Do not fear. Over and over and over. Why? Because when persecution and suffering and difficulty comes, fear. Because we're looking at the obstacle rather than our sovereign God. And so we are to display for our children and grandchildren what it means to have gospel fearlessness. You have such overwhelming hope, not in the future of this world, but in the future of the world that is to come. And so you model fearlessness before your kids. You don't stand in front of the TV and just wring your heads and just wring your hands and you're afraid, like, oh my goodness, this world's gonna fall apart. What are we gonna do? That's not what we do as believers. We Psalm 2 can join the Lord and we can laugh at the days to come, afraid of nothing. You model fearlessness. Why? Because you have a fearless Savior who has secured your eternal future. 100 years from now, the fear and the trials and the tribulation are nothing compared to the glory that's going to be revealed to us. So keep your eyes focused on Jesus. Model fearlessness. But number two, teach the Scriptures. Teach your children that they are elect exiles if they are in Christ that we are not looking for a better city here, but a better city that is to come, whose builder and foundation is God himself. We're looking by faith for a better homeland, a better country that is coming for those who believe upon Jesus. You teach your children that God is sovereign. He is big and mighty and strong, and he is good, and he is kind and he is trustworthy, and he is compassionate. Preach a big God to your children. Teach them the scriptures. Thirdly, pray for multi-generational faithfulness. Multi-generational faithfulness. Pray for your children and your grandchildren and children yet to be born. And pray, oh God, would you make them bold. May they not compromise the gospel. May they remain faithful to Jesus. May they be unashamed of the gospel. 
before Christy and I started having children, we began praying for the next 10 generations of Bruce's. That God, by his grace, would not only save the next 10, 10 generations, but they would be dangerous for the sake of the gospel. They would be passionate about fulfilling the Great Commission. May God, by his grace, do so. You see, as believers, we play offense with the gospel. We're not continually playing defense and afraid of of what someone's going to say. The war has already been won through the death and resurrection of Jesus. You are not fighting for victory. You're fighting from victory. It's already been won. But there is still work to be done. There is a battle to fight in. And so now we go out with a gospel fearlessness for the sake of Jesus. You no longer fear death. You no longer fear people. You no longer fear harm or suffering because you're free in Jesus. Don't miss this truth. The gospel liberates every believer from every fear. You don't have to be afraid. Polycarp was a second century believer who was actually discipled by the apostle John. Okay, now how awesome would that be? Well, here's a man, Polycarp, who was so faithful to the Lord. He was diligent in protecting the church from, from heresies and false teachings. He, he was bold with the gospel. Well, towards the end of his life, he was arrested, and a Roman proconsul promised Polycarp. He said, I'm going to set you free if you would renounce Christ. His response, 86 years I have served Christ, and he has never done me wrong. How can I blaspheme my king and my savior? The pro-council then threatened to throw him to wild beasts. You're going to be eaten by wild animals. His response, it is well for me to be speedily released from this life of misery. Finally, the proconsul had had enough, and he said, that's it. I'm going to burn you at the stake. His response I fear not the fire that burns for a moment. You do not know that which burns forever and ever. Here is a man who was bold as a lion. He was unafraid of suffering, unafraid of people, unafraid of harm because he had the Lord Jesus Christ. So when persecution and suffering are ever increasing for the believer, we respond with gospel confidence, afraid of nothing. But secondly, number two, when hardship comes, we speak the gospel. We speak the gospel. Look at verse 15. Peter says, but in your hearts, regard Christ the Lord as holy, ready at any time to give a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet, watch this, do this with gentleness and respect, keeping a clear conscience, so that when you are accused Those who disparage your good conduct in Christ will be put to shame. In verse 15, once again, Peter is quoting Isaiah 8. And Isaiah 8 verse 13 says, But the Lord Almighty is the one you are to regard as holy. So Peter, verse 15, is pointing to Jesus, who is the Lord Almighty. He is the Lord of hosts, who we are to sanctify. It means to set apart in our hearts is holy, meaning Jesus is the Lord, and he is to be Lord over your heart, and his holiness is to saturate every part of your life. You see, every human heart is is like a throne, and whether you're a believer or an unbeliever, someone is sitting on that throne. 
Because of sin, when we do not know Jesus, we will put many different things on the throne of our hearts. Sometimes it's money, sometimes it's people, sometimes it's sex, sometimes it's drugs and alcohol, even sometimes it's ourselves. But when you give your life to Jesus, everything from the throne is now cast off, and the Lord Jesus Christ now is the Lord God Almighty, verse, 18, uh, verse 15, of your heart. He's the one who rules and reigns. And the one who sits on the throne of your heart is the one who gets the glory. And so now Simon Peter is saying, set apart Jesus, the Lord, the, the, as your boss, he is your master. Make him Lord of your heart so that when people look at you and how you respond to suffering and how you respond to persecution, they're going to see you respond with the way of Jesus. They're going to be like, how in the world are you happy? How in the world are you full of joy and peace? Why are you always positive? Why aren't you afraid of what's happening in the world? And it's then, verse 15, that you are prepared to give an answer. And you're ready to give a defense for the sake of the gospel. You're ready to speak gospel truths in response. Why? Because Jesus is your hope. He is the one that you're looking to. And here Peter is speaking of evangelism. We go and tell others, we defend the gospel, we preach the gospel, we speak the gospel because of who lives on the throne of our hearts. That word for defense, verse 15, is where we get the word for apologetics. Apologetics means to defend the faith. There are many who, by God's grace, the Lord has given to us who are, help equip the church to articulate the gospel and to defend the gospel from those who seek to attack it. It pictures a courtroom setting where a defense attorney is able to defend the facts and answer questions. Hear me today. We have solid intellectual grounds for believing the gospel. Don't be afraid of big questions. God can handle big questions, by the way. He's not afraid of someone's doubts. He's not afraid of someone's questions. He's not afraid of someone's fears. You see, when it comes to the reality of God and the trustworthiness of the Bible and the proof of the resurrection and the logic of faith, we have evidence in our favor every single time. And may indeed let God be proven true and every man a liar. There is no reason you should be afraid or be able to get put, posture your heart where you're, you're concerned that someone's going to prove you wrong. Because here we see that we can defend the faith. I've put in your notes several different resources that are helpful when it comes to defending the faith. These are two great websites I often use, gotquestions.org. I don't agree 100% with everything they say, but the vast majority of it is solid. And that's really like the Cliff Notes versions, okay? I just type in a question, and they'll give you 10 different articles to kind of help you answer the question that you have. Carm.org is very, very detailed. It's long, it's in-depth, but it's very, very helpful, especially when you're trying to answer different questions when it comes to cults and world religions, Answers in Genesis is rich in content about how to defend creation and how to be able to speak the gospel with clarity and winsomely to those who hold fast to an evolutionary perspective. I've mentioned several different 
key thinkers and leaders when it comes to apologetics. There are many, many more I could have added to this list, but I would encourage you to go and you can read books written by these authors that will help equip you to defend the faith. You see, the, gr- the great commandment that Jesus gives to us is to love the Lord our God with our heart, soul, and mind. You love the Lord with what he has given you here. When it comes to the gospel, do not check your mind at the door. The, the gospel works not only to your heart, it also speaks right into your mind. So don't check your brain at the door. You see, faith is not a leap in the dark, but a step into the light. God is big and sovereign, and he has spoken with great clarity, and he is ready to answer any question you may have. Now, continually posture your question with humility. The Lord may withhold an answer from those who approach with pride. But yet, by his grace, the Lord has graciously given us resources. What's amazing here, verse 16, though, is not just what you say, it's how you say it. Peter says, yet do this with gentleness and respect. Gentleness is is power under control. It's the implication of humility. There are far too many believers who are aggressive, they're belligerent, they're angry, they're prideful in how they speak the gospel. Especially on social media. I just want to hit the mute button and be like, please stop. Because you can be absolutely right in what you say and be absolutely wrong with how you say it. And so here Peter, verse 15, is saying, you defend the faith. But verse 16, it matters how you say it. You speak with gentleness and with respect. There's a winsome way in which you speak the gospel. Russell Moore is the president of the Ethics and Religious Liberties Commission of the Southern Baptist Convention. And he said several years ago about how he's going to lead the organization. Listen to what he said. He said, we will stand with conviction and we'll contend as the prophets and apostles did in the public square against injustice, but we'll do so with a tone shaped by the gospel. Watch this. With a convictional kindness. I love that phrase. We're not going to back down, but we're going to speak with kindness that recognizes that our enemies are not persons of flesh and blood. Our enemies are invisible principalities and powers, the scriptures say, are in the air around us. We oppose demons. We don't demonize opponents. Spot on. We speak with convictional kindness. I'm not backing down from the truth, but the way I'm going to preach it is with the kindness of Jesus. This is the posture we as believers take to give an answer for the hope that we have. So when hardship comes, you do not fear. You speak the gospel. And number three, you be ready to suffer for doing good. Verse 17, Peter says, For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. Peter here is saying that if you're going to suffer, make sure you're doing good, not evil. Even as you are being kind and loving and patient, as you are feeding the hungry, as you're caring for the poor, as you're visiting widows and rescuing orphans, and you're ministering to the least of these, people still may rise up against you. In verse 17, it may be God's will for you to suffer. You won't hear that a lot today from many prosperity preachers. They stay away from verse 17. Because it messes up their theology. But it very well may be God's will for you to suffer. 
For us to remain faithful to Jesus, you've got to be willing to endure hardship and difficulty. When you identify with Jesus, you've got to be prepared to suffer even while you're doing good. But be encouraged by this truth. No evil can touch you apart from God's permission. Oh, that's huge. When we look at the life of Job, Satan had to check in with God before he could even lay a hand upon Job's family, Job's property, or even Job himself. Twice, Satan sought to hurt Job, and God allowed it. It was God's will for him to suffer. But Job didn't do anything wrong. He was blameless and upright. He was doing good. So, so, so why is he suffering here? He didn't do anything wrong. Well, what's amazing is that the Lord was up to something bigger. That's what God does. When hardship comes and suffering is inflicted upon us, God is still in control. I think Spurgeon nailed it when he said this, the storm has a bit in its mouth. God is sovereign over every storm that comes into your life. He is big and he is sovereign and he is at work. And so when you cannot trace his hand, Spurgeon says, you can trust his hearts. Well, Kenneth, how do we know that God is up to something bigger? Look at the cross. We look to Jesus who endured suffering, the only perfect, innocent one, suffers and dies. The greatest act of evil ever committed was done to Jesus. But God was up to something. Because it was through the death of Jesus, God was working something. It was the salvation of many. It was redemption and salvation that God was using through the suffering. And ultimately, he's setting up the greatest comeback in history, the resurrection on the third day. So when suffering comes into your life, you do not have to be afraid. You can speak the gospel and you can remain faithful to Jesus knowing that God is up to something bigger than you can see. You see, what William Wallace could not see was that he was laying a foundation for future gospel mission that would take place. And it was accomplished through his shed blood which points forward to Jesus, who through his suffering, God was up to something. And ultimately, it's the glory of his son. So when you face suffering, you don't have to be afraid. You can have gospel confidence, and you can declare with the apostle Paul and with William Wallace, for to me to live is Christ, and to die is gain. That is true because of Jesus.